Well, good morning, you guys. How you guys doing? Sarah, you're clapping for me? You are awesome. I love you back. You are so cool. Man, what a great morning. That's a good way to come out. See, Sarah clapping for me. I love that. Hey, let's go ahead and pray this morning. I'm going to get right to business because uh, we, we oddly have a lot of ground to cover while we cover very little ground. You'll see in a minute. Um, so let's go ahead and pray it up. Jesus, I thank you for grace. And I don't say that in a trivial way. I mean, I think the essence of what we are looking at this morning in your word is a tribute to a word that we use often, but we don't often plumb the depths of that word. We say it, we, we affirm it, we say it's the bedrock of our Christian faith that we don't earn, we don't work, we don't try to amass for ourselves salvation. It is a gift of your grace. But again, like I said, I don't think we always go deep into what that really means. And this morning, as we look at your word, we see the depths of grace. We see a grace that is so beyond our mind to comprehend that when we hear about it, we actually struggle with it because it is that deep of grace. And so I pray that you cement that into us. I pray that we will love the grace that you show, a grace that goes into the mysterious, right? So it's a part of a grace that's tethered to a love that is so deep and wide and profound that it surpasses understanding. I mean, we know that from, from Paul. And I pray that that would be housed in us so that we can live with boldness and courage and hope And we can have a conviction that is so rooted in our delight in you that, again, the only way we can articulate it is to say, that's grace. So show us that today, we ask in your good and perfect name. Amen. All right, if you have a Bible, be it analog or digital, you can open up to, I was listening to Alistair Begg this week, he's out of the United Kingdom. I love those guys because they don't say 1 Peter, they say, open up to 1 Peter. So, open up to one Peter, all right? We're gonna be looking at first Peter, the way a sloppy English-speaking people say it, where the cool people say, ah, two Corinthians, all right? So we are in one Peter. I'm gonna keep saying it until you say, stop it, Harry Potter. Just get on with, you know, whatever you want to preach on this morning. Now, as you are on your way to chapter one of first Peter, uh, I'm gonna ask you a question, and I want you to honestly think about this question. The question, it's going to be a very simple question at first until you think about it, Um, who are you? Who are you? So if somebody came up to you and they said, who are you? What would be the descriptors that you would use to describe yourself? Or what are the things that you've picked up over the course of time that you see as a part of the branding that brands you? How would you describe that? See, I think most of us pretty naturally would start to go to those things that are kind of in the top tier of ways that we have self-identifiers. So, for example, we'd probably first go to our familial background. We'd say, well... I'm a father or a mother, I'm a husband, I'm a wife, I'm a child, I'm a son or a daughter, I'm a grandparent, right? We we might describe ourselves in that way, and that's totally accurate, it's what you are. Uh, You might look at your occupational background and say, well, uh, I'm a stay-at-home mom, or I'm in retail, or I'm in sales, or I'm a contractor, or an engineer, or a programmer, you might go to that level. You might look at sort of your general social identifiers. Uh, I'm a gamer, or I'm an athlete, or I'm an artist. Uh, You might look at some of those things. You might look at other things like your hobbies, 
right? So uh, I like to tinker. I like to run. Uh, you know, there's any number of things that you're going to use as the self-identifier to overall paint the picture of who you are, right? That's how we operate. And there's a lot of strength in that. And there is, in and of itself, a lot of identity in that because we all crave identity. We all want to belong to something. We all want to be sort of defined by a certain set of values. And when we look at our time and energy and money, we see that it all pours in to those identifiers, right? All of that we understand. Now, sometimes negatively, um, we have identifiers that are wounding or crippling, or create discouragement, or fear, or anxiety. Maybe growing up, you were given some of those identifiers. Maybe it was you're fat, or you're ugly, or you're stupid, or in a more uh, benign vernacular, you are remedial. You are lesser in some way, or you always, or you never. I, I don't know how you grew up. I don't know what you face as an adult. I see sometimes in marriages, when marriages are going sideways and off the rails, suddenly lots of labels are applied in the negative to define you, to say this is your identity, and that becomes very problematic. And sometimes we are haunted by identities that are given to us. Other times we're very inspired by identities that are given to us. Now I say all of that because I believe that Peter in his introduction, is leveraging this very reality of who are you and labels and how labels can mobilize and encourage or how labels can destroy or hamper or cripple an individual. Because as Peter writes this particular letter, he's writing to a group of Christians, which, by the way, as a background, I, I don't believe he's writing to a group of Jewish Christians. I believe he's writing to a group of non-Jewish Gentile Christians, and he's encouraging them much from their Bible, which is the Old Testament. But he's going into great detail using words and pictures and phrases that are meant to anchor the Christian identity of who are you. And he's doing that in relationship to a culture that is also applying labels to the Christians and trying to identify them in the negative, attempting to shame them or quiet them or get rid of them completely through a series of stereotypes and, and caricatures that is bred to create greater rejection of Christianity. If you think about the season that Peter writes there in the first century, uh, Nero is the reigning emperor of Rome and of the Roman Empire. Uh, he has no love for Christians, but persecution's been building for a while. And what has fundamentally happened is people have started following Jesus, and what is unique about Jesus in the climate of the Roman context is that Jesus is very exclusive. See, Rome, for no better purpose of stating it, was very pluralistic, right? Lots of different gods, lots of different systems, lots of different social ethics, all under one umbrella. But then Jesus says, follow me, and I'm the only way, and I have the only truth, and I am the only life, and this book is the only book, and I decree to you how to live, and this way is the only way, and apart from that, you're estranged from God. Apart from the gospel, you're estranged from God, and you're hell-bound. That's in a very exclusive kind of articulation of the Christian faith, and the Roman populace said, well, you guys are narrow. You're bigots. Uh, you, you are superstitious. You are not a part of the cultural norm. Uh, you're condemning us by your exclusivity. In other words, I don't think 
the roughly 62, 63 AD period is all that different than the period we find ourselves in today as Christians in the United States where we're sometimes looked at and we're told, well, you're kind of bigoted or you're exclusive or you're narrow, you think your way is the only way. And, 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 and some of those opinions uh, are ratcheted up to levels that we're not trying to communicate. People just kind of take them to the extreme degree, and then from that we're seen as sort of extreme fringe people that are more of a threat than an aid. Right? That, that's sort of what can happen in some of this, and that's what's happening with Peter's audience. And so from that, they're, they're receiving a lot of outside labels. And, and Peter's going to tap into some of that outside labeling, but then he's going to ground them in the label that really matters, right? That's the whole heart behind this whole thing. Now, as we go into this, um, this is what we call a, an opening salutation in letter writing, right? It's kind of the opening intro, the, hey, how are you guys doing? But Peter does this very different than other people, like, like, what I find is like Paul kind of like, hey, grace, mercy, and peace to you, and then he moves into the body of his letter. Peter is crazy right off the bat. He's just going to go deep, man. I'm talking dense, dense, deep, right? There's like chocolate cake, and then there's like fudge, right? And, and like Paul's kind of like the chocolate cake, like, hey, good to see you guys. I got some stuff to write, and then boom, he drops the bomb, right? Um, Peter instantly is like, here's a brownie. Here is fudge, I'm going to say all these densely laid, weighty things right from the get-go. And, and so this morning, as we enter into 1 Peter, um, we're going to cover, ready, a verse and a half. I know. At this point, snails and turtles are like, bro, we lapped you already, right? So, like, like we're, we're going to go slow, but we're going to go slow because, again, what did I say last week? Uh, some things are so dense, you take small bites and you chew a lot. And, and, and Peter is going to write so densely, and he's going to refer to things that are loaded uh, in regard to their understanding of the Old Testament in regard to other places in the New Testament, that we want to slow it down a little bit and understand the density of all of this. This is the heart behind it. So it opens in chapter 1, verse 1. Some of this ground we already covered. But it's Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Peter, the guy that we know. Peter, the guy that uh, endured even in failure. Right? He, he didn't allow his failure to define him. He didn't put the giant failure across his forehead. He didn't have a failure t-shirt, though he had failed. No, he found his life in the grace of God, and by the grace of God, Peter was restored, deployed, and used because Jesus said, man, do you love me? He says, yes, I love you. Feed my sheep, feed my lambs, care for my people, invest into my church. I'm going to use you. Peter understands the power of grace, not just the grace that forgives, but the grace that empowers you to action. And so it's that same Peter, a sent one, of Jesus Christ. And he's writing to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. And they list a series of places that kind of span parts of Asia and Europe. Uh, they're all over the place, and, and that's who he's writing to. Now, we're going to stop right there for a minute because I think, in and of itself, there are three words there that are loaded words. Right? Three things that we need to take note of. And I'm not going to take these in order. I'm going to break it up a little bit. And I want to start with the word exiles. Now, Peter is written to them in the first century, but it is for us. 
It's for our good. It's for our learning. We have some things to learn here. And in some ways, what we should learn is that we too, just like they, were exiles. In other words, the mindset we have in life is that this planet and the systems of this planet, uh, being in the United States, having a citizenship in the United States, all of that is really a drifter reality. Right? We're drifters. We're tenters. We should not look at this world as though our mission is to lay down brick and mortar and say this home is forever our home. Peter's saying, no, no, no. You're exiles. Right? You're out of the fray. You're altogether different. That's the heart he has in that word. We're, in that sense, drifters with purpose. Now, I don't want you to think drifters just drifting along. No, we're drifters with purpose. There are certain things that we're called to. The rest of First Peter is going to give some, some borders to that calling. But fundamentally, we drift. Now, what is tricky is that we are actually in a world full of drifters, right? Christians are drifters with purpose. Everybody else is drifting sort of purposeless, right? So we cleave to a lot of things to try to give us purpose. We cleave to economics. We tr- cleave to sexuality. We cleave to politics. We cleave to whatever, to try to find direction. Everybody is sort of aimless in our world, but what God does is he steps into our life, and even though we are exiles and this is in our home, he gives us direction, and the heart behind being an exile is saying, you know what? Yes, you live in this world, and yes, you contribute to this world, but you're not called to be just like this world. You're meant to be outside of the fray of the ideology that kind of ensnares us. That's what it means to be an exile. And and this word is not new, right? Again, Peter is writing to people and reminding them of their Bible, and their Bible is the Old Testament. And and if you're a student of the Bible at any level, you have heard of something called the exile, right? So we learned this even in our last series on the women of the Bible, right? So uh, there was the kings of Israel. Eventually, it all falls apart, divides. That even falls apart, and they all find themselves in exile, torn from their homeland, outside of their normal culture, not in control of the environment, and they're handed over to the Babylonians, And in Jeremiah 29, we see what I consider to be sort of like the constitution of Israel in a time of exile. And in Jeremiah 29, starting in verse 1, it says this. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exile. And everybody else attached to them, right? So we get a sense of the exile. And in verse 4, he says, this is what you're supposed to do during the exile. It says, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. By the way, note that God sent them. It seems bad because the Babylonians aren't exactly nice people, but God has done this. And this is what God commands them. Build houses and live at them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease. Right? Keep advancing, keep growing, keep living your life that way. He says, but seek, in verse 7, the welfare of the city for why I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for its welfare, in its welfare, you will find your welfare. So you and I are exiles, just like Old Testament Israel was exiles. We're in a foreign land called this world. This is not our home, we're just a passing through. Thank you, great songs of the past, right? So um, we know that. But while we're here, this is what we do. 
While we're here, we have families. While we're here, we grow. While we're here, we make investment. While we're here, we have uh, an economic system that we are invested into. We do all of that, and we want the welfare of our community to succeed, so we pray to God to do that. And then in verse 8, it says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets or your diviners who are among you deceive you. See, one of the challenges of living in exile is that over the course of time, you can be tempted to say, you know what, I'm tired of exile. I'm tired of this pressure that says, yes, the world around me is like this, and God calls me to this, and I don't want to keep doing what God calls me to because it makes me feel like an outsider in the exile. I want to feel like an insider in the exile, and so I just need prophets, I need teachers, I need recreators of truth to soften that so I feel more like an insider in an exiled world. And God says, don't don't go down that road. Don't start listening to the ones that say, you know what, culture says this and the Bible says that. Blow off the Bible and rewrite it to fit your environment. God warns of that. And it's that same image that Peter is concerned about. You you get into a second letter, and it's mostly about the danger of false teachers teaching Christians to embrace the exile life instead of being exiles in life. Right? That, that's the inherent risk. And so the exile constitution is, man, live in this world. Reach to this world, but don't wholesale join this world. In fact, I read a quote this week. It's um, attributed to Jesus. It's apocryphal. We, we don't have any record of this in the Bible at all, but I, I think the quote in and of itself is just a helpful tool. It says, the world is a bridge. The wise man will cross over it, but he will not build his house upon it. And that's the heart of an exile, right? It's not my home. I'm not trying to plant my roots here so deeply that this world then defines how I understand who God is or where I'm eventually going or how I'm intended to live. We don't want to do it that way. Now, here's the thing. When you embrace living as an exile by God's standard, the reality will be that the world around you is also going to call you an exile in a different way, right? So God says, you're an outsider, but live in it as an outsider. But they'll eventually say, you're an outsider, and we don't like that you live in it as an outsider. So they'll see you as an outcast, right? And when you're outcast over enough time, the outcast nature begins to apply more and more pressure. This is why this word dispersion comes into play. It comes into play because not only are they outsiders in the world, but after a while, they're told they're outsiders in the world. Right? And that creates all kinds of challenge for them. In the first century, what was going on is Christians, as they were trying to stand in their faith, would go to the marketplace to buy or sell, and they were told, well, you have to worship Caesar to have a business license. Like, you can worship Jesus, you can worship any God you want, but you also have to acknowledge that Caesar is God, and you have to burn incense to Caesar to enter the marketplace to buy and to sell, and the Christians are saying, well, I can't do that, and so it was, well, sorry, you, you can't buy and sell. You, you no longer have your trade. And so people began to wander in the dispersion, trying to find places for work, trying to find a place that could be a safe haven for their faith, and they were running into increasing problems with that. And imagine the pressure that would put, 
right? Not only are you trying to live distinctly for Jesus in a world that isn't welcoming of that, but now the world is putting so much pressure that you are dislodged, right? You are so dislodged. I mean, have you ever been in a circumstance where um, you were laid off or you just lost your job or you were fired, Right? Think about all that emotion. Can, can we stay in this house or can we not? Am I going to find a job locally? Will, will I not? How long can I be on, on assistance or welfare or unemployment or whatever before it runs out? And it creates all this home instability. Or if you've ever been foreclosed upon, and you're like, where, where are we going to live next? Or, we're going to have to rent for a while. Well, where can we rent and what's available to rent? And, and then the whole home is in disarray. See, there, there's your circumstance that these people are experiencing Right? They're wanderers in life. They're not necessarily wanted within their culture. They're trying to live for Jesus and not live for their world, but their world is saying, this is the problem. If you just stop living so distinctly for Jesus, you would fit right in. They're branded and labeled and just, again, there, there's just this, this um, umbrella over them of stereotype. I mean, you read some of the Roman historians of how they stereotype Christians. They said they're cannibals and they're incestuous because they eat and drink the body of, and blood of Christ and they give each other a brotherly kiss. So they were then hyper-labeled outside of what they really were. So, with a brand like that, it can be discouraging. And yet, go back to what Peter says. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. See, if it was just exiles and dispersion, uh, that, that would, you know, exiles, not so bad, we get it. Dispersion, it's rougher. But he says, you're not just any exiles. You're not just a dispersed people. You are a people that are chosen by God. That word elect means God has chosen you. Now, here is why I say we're dealing with a thick, fudgy brownie today. Right? Because we're going to start to stumble into these words that are loaded. And not just loaded for us. They were loaded for the original readers. What does it mean that they're elect? What is that word all about? Well, let me, let me try to simplify it. Um, the word elect, sometimes it's just translated as chosen, gets into all sorts of confusion and debate and problem because we're like, well, what does that mean? What does chosen mean? You ready? Here's the simplest definition I can give you. Chosen means chosen. All right? So, like, like that's what it means. Right? And, and there's, there, there's a debate. We get into theology a little bit, which is, well, is, is, are they called chosen because God chose them to save them, or are they called chosen because God saved them, and thus their definition is chosen? So are you chosen under salvation, or are you saved and thus are called chosen? The answer is yes. It's just a yes. Right here, let me explain it. So I've got two apples up here, because they're delightful, uh, and, and I, I, I have these two, and I do this. I choose an apple. I, I choose it, and that's, that's it's, it's chosen. Right? So when we get into, is that something that happens before or something that happens after? Is that something that God is doing or is that a designation you get once you're saved? And I go back to the answer is yes because it still comes back that God is the chooser and he chooses and thus their definition is chosen. Right? I mean, it's that simple. We're not the choosers. We're never called the choosers and God is called the chosen. We're called the chosen. God is the chooser. 
right? Now, there's a lot of mystery in this. I'm not going to try to pretend to define the mystery. I'm also not going to get into every nuance about this because I'm trying to stay with the spirit of Peter. Peter is not getting into this so we can all sit around and say, well, did I make my arm do this or did God predetermine it? That's not, right? (laughs) That's not at all Peter's heart. It's not at all. If you're discouraged, if you're unwanted, if you're called fat, stupid, lazy, always, never, and then somebody steps in and says, I know they don't like you, they don't want you, but God chose you, you go, at least somebody loves me, right? This is is his heart. That's where he's going. In fact, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, You see this idea that God chooses, and from that, you're saved, and from that, you're called chosen. It just says it in a slightly different way. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 13 says, But we ought to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved. Just notice the order. God chose you to be saved. Through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. So then, sanctification by the Spirit, belief, and now you're chosen, right? Choose, chosen. It's just a a flow of what God does. And it's not designed for us, again, to go, well, how is that fair? What about free will? Or all these kinds of things that we can go down. Because that's not Peter's concern. It's just not Peter's concern. He's trying to encourage, he's trying to inspire, he's trying to remind you how much God loves you, that God wanted you. The world may not want you. God wants you desperately, deeply, and personally. He's saying to a bunch of homeless people, God has chosen you for his home. That's the heart. So from this, he goes into some bigger ideas yet. He says, to those who are elect, first of all, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Another big, scary word. Yay, us, all right? But but again, you you keep the flow in mind. He's saying, okay, you're chosen by God. You're elect by God. And, And first of all, you're elect by God according to foreknowledge. That according to, right? It's just that idea of determination, Right? So God is determined in his foreknowledge to elect you. Now the question about this word is, well, what does it mean? Is this about information or is this about intimacy? Is, it this, is this describing that, that God way back in eternity past said, you know what, I'm going to look ahead, you know, like down the, 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 the annuals of time to come and, 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 and then sees Matt and in foreknowing, sees that I'm going to choose him, and then he says, well, because he's going to choose me, I choose him. Is that the vision? Uh, or, or is the vision something different? Um, here, there's a series of dilemmas with that notion. Now, again, I'm not claiming I know how it works, but I can say there's dilemmas with that. The first is it makes God very reactive. Right? So God looks ahead, sees that I choose him, and then he chooses me because I choose him. That goes back to, I'm the chooser and he's the chosen. It never says that. It says, no, he chooses. He's the proactive agent. Right? That's the first part of this. The second is this idea that God needed to look ahead to see what I do so that he would know what he would do based on what I do. You know, now God's moving kind of from ignorance to knowledge. Oh, I see what Matt's going to do, so this is what I'm going to do. 
right? And that's a, another dilemma. But the, the third dilemma, the dilemma I think is the biggest about it, and again, I'm not claiming I understand it. It's a lot of mystery, right? Like, I know my wife, but there's a lot of mystery there too, right? Like, there's, right? Like, honestly, like, you know, th- this idea that we can fully understand all of this, I'm like, I- I'm, this is the person I'm closest to, and I don't fully understand everything, right? So there's a lot of mystery. Now we're talking about God. But the most important part is that this word, what it's communicating is less about information, like it's some cold, mechanical God looking ahead or God outside of time, just seeing everything that happens. It's not cold and distant. It's very tender and intimate, this word. So, for example, you know, like um, if I said, um, uh, that guy knew her, like in the Bible, um, what do we mean by no? We mean something intimate. We mean something tender, something connected, something loving in no. And so that God foreknows. It's not that he has for information as much as he has for intimacy, for care, for investment, right? In fact, Warren Wearsby, love me some Warren Wearsby, said it this way. Foreknowledge is God's proactive setting of love on you in a personal way. That's how he defined foreknowledge. It's God's personal proactive setting of love on you in a personal way. And, And that's how it really is meant to be seen. I'm not getting into the mysteries of where does free will start and sovereignty end and all of those things. It's not my heart. My heart is, again, to go back to what is Peter sharing? What do these words mean? How are they meant to encourage In fact, in Romans chapter 8, Paul is writing. Chapter 8, huge encouragement, right? He says, there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. The law of the Spirit has set us free from the law of sin and death. And why is that good news? Because life is hard. He says, all of creation yearns and groans under the pressure of life. Everybody is suffering. It's so hard. It's so difficult. I groan in my spirit. I groan as the Spirit groans in me in prayer because life is difficult. And then he says something interesting in verse 28. After talking about how all of this is hard, he says, and we know, we know that for those who love God, all things work for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So this is Paul's answer to why is life hard? Or does God love me when life is hard? Is God punishing me if I'm a Christian and life is hard? And Paul's saying, whoa, whoa, wait, listen, all things work to good. Right? So, yes, you, you, you might be suffering. Yes, you might be dying. Yes, you might have cancer. You might have a disease. You might live in a part of the world that is impoverished and riddled with sickness all the time. But if you're God's child, all thing is working out for good to those who love God. You go, well, what's the proof of that? How do I know that all things are working to good for those who love God? Immediately, the next verse. It says, for those whom he foreknew... He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Right? And and again, this isn't a cold indifference. Paul's trying to encourage. He's pastoring. Life is hard. What faith can you have in the hard things of life? Here's what you can know. God has foreknown you for intimate involvement at some level. And from that, he predetermined your destination set. He's already decided, here's your destination. You're buying the ticket here. This is your destination here. You're going to land at SeaTac, kind of thing, right? It's predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's that final state, Philippians 3. We're resurrected in Christ. We bear his image completely, right? And then verse 30. It says, and those whom he predestined, these he also called. So if 
he predetermined this was going to be, then he calls you in this life. And if he calls you, he's going to justify you. And if he justify you, justifies you, he is going to glorify you. Those whom he justified, these he also glorified. Now, it's a bunch of theological jargon. Go back to why Paul shares it, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Right? This is what I'm saying. We get into all of the philosophical jumble you know, about fairness and, 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 and what about freedom of will, and, and there's verses about that. And if Peter was addressing that right now, he'd be getting into that. That's not what Peter's addressing. He's trying to encourage and inspire you. Right? God just loves you. God just sets his affections on you. God has always relentlessly loved you. Now, beyond that, I don't understand how all of that plays out. I, I don't believe I need to understand how all of that plays out. What I know is it's rooted in God's love. That's what I know. In fact, you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 7. God is explaining to Israel why did he choose them. It says, for you are a people, verse 6, holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. It's not because you are more in number than the other people the Lord set his love on you and chose you uh, because you were few. He goes, rather, the Lord chose you even though you were the fewest of all people. So it's fundamentally, it's because the Lord loves you that he chose you. Right? It just goes back to love. I'll jump to another passage really quick because we can. Ephesians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world. Why did he choose us in him before the foundations of the world? That we should be holy and blameless before him. It was in love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Again, it's a mystery. I know he loves us. I know it's according to the purpose of his will so that we would praise his glorious grace. This is why I keep saying uh, grace is deep. It's so deep, God says, I've always known you. I've always loved you. I've always willed to set my love on you. I've always willed to redeem you and therefore be encouraged. Be encouraged. When the world is against you, when you feel the pressure, when you wonder why so many bad things may be happening in your life, you go, wait, but all things work to good. And, and how do I know this? Because nothing can be against me because God is for me because God has always been for me. Always and forever. Again, if we can just take this truth as that beautiful truth, it's very liberating. It's when we get into the other side of, well, did he choose everybody? And if he didn't choose everybody, how is that fair? And I go, that, that, that's, a, that's a sidebar that, that we create sometimes that God really doesn't create to, when he's trying to encourage. We create it as an extension outside of the encouragement. right? And we shouldn't do it. So when Ellen chose to marry me, I, I didn't stand at the altar going, but what about Jeff and what about Donnie and what about Mike? And, you know, like... <laughs> Right? I mean, I didn't do that. I'm like, she chose me. Right? So that's the point. Right? To, to go further down the road is to miss the encouragement that God loves you personally, unconditionally, proactively, eternally, unstoppably. That's the heart of election according to foreknowledge. But then Peter goes further. 
And she says, you are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit. This whole thing is very Trinitarian. Father, Son, and Spirit are directly celebrated in relationship to the salvation of God's people. And so typically when we think about uh, sanctification, we, we as Christians think about um, how God grows us, right? Like every Christian, you're like a sapling when you come to Christ, And over the course of time, you grow from a sapling into the tree, and every year as you grow, it's another ring, right? That's part of how we understand sanctification. God is laying down rings in your life, and sometimes he uses hardship, sometimes he uses joy. All of that is the rings, right? And in one sense, that's sanctification. Peter is using this slightly different here uh, because he's getting back to how they were saved, who they are in Christ, And there what he's talking about is that there was this moment in time where according to God's foreknowledge, he says, I love you, I've set my love on you, and the Holy Spirit descended into your world. And I think most of us as Christians attest to this at times. Where we're like, you know what, just, man, God just got a hold of me. God just got my attention. I had heard it before, it didn't matter, it didn't make sense, I didn't care, I blew it off, I was angry at it, any number of things. And then suddenly there's this time where it's like, whoa, I need that. Or this is just right, or this feels right, or I need to make this step. This is that moment where the Holy Spirit steps in, and you had blind eyes, and now you see. You had a hard heart, and now you have a soft heart. You were unwilling, and now you're willing. That's that descent of the Holy Spirit sanctifying, creating this moment of eye-opening awareness. In fact, in Titus chapter 3, we see an example of this. Titus uh, is, is, a, is a follower of, of Paul as far as um, church planting goes. And Paul is writing to Titus, and he says, man, you're in a tough place. Crete is rough and tumble, man. It's, it's like Sicilian, you know. It's tough, right? So um, I want you to know how to live among the people of Crete. He says, but because don't forget what you were like. Right, Because he says, you know what, here's what you need to do while you're there. You need to be submissive to rulers and authorities, be obedient, be ready for every good work, speak evil of no one, avoid quarreling, be gentle to all, show perfect courtesy toward everyone you're around. Why? For we ourselves were once foolish and disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. This, this was our unsaved state. He goes, this was their unsaved state there in Crete. This is why we want to be kind to the lost world, because we were once like that. We should acknowledge the fact that slavery runs deep in our soul. He says, we were just like that, but, verse 4, when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. When we were enslaved, he saved us. When we were hard, he saved us. When we were in rebellion, he saved us. When we were rejecting, he saved us. When we were doing our own thing, he saved us. Not because of works done by us and righteousness, but according to his own mercy. How did this happen? This is the key. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit steps in says, you're broken. I want to deal with the broken. You're blind. I want to make you see. You're hard. I want to make you soft. And so he steps in and does that. It's the washing, regeneration, renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by grace. See that that comes next. The Holy Spirit steps in, and then from that, we are then saved by that grace. 
right? So God is, is so proactive, is so gracious in this that the Holy Spirit is doing the work. And so Peter is saying, God has for loved you and the Holy Spirit stormed into your world and made you aware. This is how you should see yourself in Christ. He goes on further. It's not just according to foreknowledge. It's not merely in the sanctification of the Holy Spirit, but it goes on to say, for obedience to Jesus Christ. That's the result. Notice that, according to, in, and for. Those three things, according to, in, for. It's the, the Trinity works in concert toward your life, toward my life, toward believers' lives. And here it's twofold. One, it's God pursues, the Spirit pursues, and in that pursuit we become aware of Christ and we're obedient to the gospel call. It, it makes sense at whatever level. We go, yes, I just need Jesus. That's obedience to the gospel call of follow me. And that's how the Holy Spirit produces. That's how the Father produces. This is how the Son operates. And that's true in a very real sense. It's obedience to the call. But then from obedience to the call of the gospel flows obedience from our lives. When we know that God has loved us so much, the Spirit has pursued us so radically, that the Son has offered so much, we obey that call and we obey that call going forward. We want to be with Jesus has redeemed us to be. What's great is he makes it possible too. It says not only for obedience to Jesus, it says and for sprinkling with his blood. If you go to Hebrews 10, there's a great little section in Hebrews 10 where it says in verse 11, it says every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. So he's referring to this time where, um, you know, every year the high priest would, would go into the Holy of Holies and all the other priests would slaughter all these different animals and it didn't fully abolish your sin. It only blanketed your sin. He says, but, in verse 12, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Right? So he says there's this moment in time, right, as the Holy Spirit awakens you, as Christ calls into your life and you obey the gospel call, that what happens there is in an instant you are perfected in Christ. You're perfected forever. In the sense of how God sees you is no longer under judgment. God sees you as having the righteousness of Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. That's how he sees you. That's how he sees me. And then it says, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. This is that idea of the rings. So you are made perfect in Christ the moment of your conversion, and then Christ is growing you, sanctifying you, to one day you get to a point where you then emulate and embody that perfection in the way that you were saved, right? It's just, it, that's, your, that's your destination in Christ. And, and so Peter is saying all of this, all of this, to encourage, to inspire, to aid, to say that's how much the Father loves you. This is how much the Spirit loves you. This is how much the Son loves you. You're set, you're secure, you're wanted, you're desired. No matter what the world says to you, no matter how many people call you names, no matter how many bad things seem to occur in your life, know that you are God's precious elect. 
And if God is for you, what can be against you? If God is so for you that he's been for for you, and he's already decreed that you have a conclusion in him, from that, Peter's going to say, endure. Endure. Hold up. Take the pressure. Take the weight, knowing the promise. No wonder after saying, you are God's elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus and for the sprinkling of his blood. No wonder he says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. He's saying it because it's true. It's been multiplied to you. And I think that is the most important thing for us. Sometimes we, we, we act as though we, we don't have everything we need. Sometimes we pray, uh, give me more strength, give me more hope, give me more whatever. And I think the most important thing is to say, it, it's there. What we're really talking about is, God, help me to engage what you've given. Help me to live by the label that you have granted. Help me to believe on the worst days that I am your beloved, always loved son or daughter. And when people want to call me some other name or brand me in some other way or see me as a radical in some strange fashion, God, help me to just go, you know what? You're for me. You're for me. No matter who's against me, you're for me. And you're for me because you hold me by your grace. Let's go ahead and pray together. Jesus, I thank you for the density of Peter's opening. I mean, because it's dense. It says a lot. And it sets the stage then to challenge this other side of our will. To say, because this is you, choose to endure, choose to obey, choose to pursue holiness. You've been freed. You are loved. You were sought. You were sealed. You were picked. I pray that that would be our motivator, knowing how deep, how profound your love for us, and that that would drive all that we do. We thank you and we love you.